the youth retreat this morning, so they're not here, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to owe all three kids something for this. I hope you enjoyed it. If you got uh, a copy of the worship guide, if not, get one on the way out. This is one of my favorite Christmas pictures. It never stops being awesome. Every year I revisit it and I share it on social media and it always brings me good tidings of great joy. But it didn't start out that way. This is not the picture or the memory that we envision taking home with us when we got the kids dressed to meet with Santa that morning. I can assure you, the arms you see in the picture attempting to either hold Luke in the frame of the shot or to convince him that he will be on that lap were Christie's. And I don't remember if she was laughing or crying when this happened. <laughs> and why was Luke running, you might ask? I'll let you create your own caption. Was Nora crying because she's scared of Santa? Or was she crying because her brother was running away? Or was she crying because she wanted her mother's arms too? Who knows? Jackson is the control group. <laughs> He's just taking it all in. Christie's attempting to make the scene look more like she envisioned it, or at least to capture it as it is, and I am taking pictures, which is so helpful, I'm sure. <laughs> How often do we experience moments in life that are like this? We have a vision for how things are supposed to go, how they should go, how we assume that they will go. We have hopes and we have dreams attached to that vision. We plan for it, we show up for it, we dress for it, and then it goes like this. And we're either laughing or crying or both, maybe, if we've made ourselves at least a little bit open to something unexpected happening. Something that wasn't what we envisioned. And that last thing is a response that I've been trying to cultivate in myself. Because in so many situations, I don't know if you've found this or not, but life is so much better if we can become less attached to outcomes. Life can be so much better if we are not overly attached to certain expectations or outcomes. Now, I'm a dreamer. I'm a planner. And I, I believe in the value of having plans and having dreams and having goals and expectations and of putting good effort into seeing things come about the way that you want them to be. And I'm also learning that... There's an aspect of life's goodness and life's joy and life's richness, a quality in life that will forever remain elusive to us if we are overly attached to certain outcomes. Certain outcomes in our professional lives, certain outcomes in our personal lives, in our spiritual lives, in our emotional lives, in our lives. And this is a delicate dance. 
This is the delicate dance of discernment. Learning to identify what and when it is that our expected outcomes coming true as we wanted them to are absolutely optimal and learning also in the midst of that to be open to the goodness and the richness and the possibility that can come out if we're a bit more at ease. If we hold things a bit more loosely. If we're open to things happening in a way that's different than we expected or wanted them to. Because for better or for worse, things will rarely unfold in a way that matches up with our expectations in life. We see this reality playing out in a more dire way in this passage of Scripture. It's an interchange between God and God's people, and within it we see more than one example of both God and the people not getting exactly what they expect, and it's not really meant to have an air of comedy like a chaotic Christmas card photo shoot. The reading opens with God announcing to the people that their assumptions about the future are way off. Their assumptions about how things are going to unfold in the future with God are way, way off. Woe to you, God says, who desire the day of the Lord. Why in the world would you be looking forward to that? Because see, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment in the future. The day of the Lord is supposed to be a day when God brings about justice, when there is accountability, and they're assuming in this moment that there are going to be no surprises on this performance review. Nothing to worry about. All things are all good with this God. And so God's response here is not exactly what they respect, what they expect. The day of the Lord will be darkness and not light to you. It will be as if, and there is no better illustration than the one that is provided here with these prophets. It will be as if you're walking along in the woods, and then all of a sudden a wild animal appears, and you see the teeth, and you see the claws, and, and the animal's angry, and it's coming after you, and you know that it wants to take you down. And so you begin to run faster than you've ever run in your entire life, and you're, you're moving around trees, and you're jumping over little holes and things like that, and you're just trying with everything in your being to get away from this wild animal. And then off in the distance you see a cabin. Where did that come from? A safe house and you begin running as fast as you can toward that safe house and the animal almost gets you. It's nipping at your heels but then it stumbles and you're somehow able to get inside the cabin, close the door and lock it just before it gets you. You feel this overwhelming sigh of relief as the terror fades away from you and it's dark so you reach up looking for a light switch because there's electricity in these woods. And as soon as you think you've found it, a snake sinks its teeth into your fingers. Would that get your attention? 
I assure you it got theirs because that is not what they expected. That is not how they expected their future life with God to go. Why? Or why was it going to be like this? Well, it has something to do with alignment and congruence. God says, I hate, I despise your festivals, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I won't even look at them. Take me away from the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like, and the translation, the interpretation, the actual text actually there is like a chaotic ocean that you find yourself completely immersed in. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What would you do if Jesus were to walk in the back door right now and you heard the door open and close and you looked back to see who it was and for some reason you knew without a shadow of a doubt it was Jesus you instantly knew it was Jesus and and your your eyes then everybody's eyes were fixed and we all instantly knew it was Jesus and Jesus didn't sit down Jesus began to walk down the aisle and everything got quiet and we began to walk watch Jesus walk down the aisle Jesus walked up these steps. Jesus came here and stopped and silently looked at me and I knew I needed to get out of the way. This is his pulpit. He comes up here. We get the sound just right. (laughs) I'll ask you to explain that to the sound person later, Jeff. We get the sound just right. He looks out at us. He pauses. He clears his throat. And then he looks us in the eye and says, I hate this. I despise this. Is that what we expected? Why would he say that? Why would he say that to to us? And why would he say that here to these people in Amos' prophecy? It's not about the beauty or the lack of beauty in the music. It's not about the rightness of how a song is played. It's not about one style or another. It's not even really about the content of what they're saying, though it is about the substance. The answer, to some extent, is about congruence. It's about a lack of congruence between what we say and what we do. It's about a lack of congruence between what God wants for us and what God sees with us. It's about a lack of congruence. In his book, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, Eugene Peterson says this, The Christian life is the lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Congruence between ends and means. Congruence between what we do and the way that we do it. Congruence between what is written in Scripture and our living out of what is written in Scripture. 
The congruence of the Word made flesh in Jesus with what is lived out in our flesh. Congruence is about deep integrity. When we're talking about congruence, we're talking about a wholeness that comes together when we realize that there is utter and complete alignment between what a thing is and what a thing does. Between who a person is and what a person does. Have you ever met someone like that? You know anybody who has that kind of congruence in their lives? T.S. Eliot tapped into this while commenting on his friend and writer Charles Williams after his death saying, and listen to this, some men are less than their works, some are more. Charles Williams cannot be placed into either class. To have known the man would have been enough. To know his books, also enough. He was the same man in his life and in his writings. And this is what we're talking about. In a life of congruence, there is very little slippage between what we say and what we do. Between what we proclaim to believe and who we actually are. And this kind of congruence takes intentionality over time. It accumulates over time. In Amos 5, what we see here is a lack of congruence between what the people are claiming about God and what they are living in response to that claim about God, between what they say and what they do, especially, pay attention to this, when it comes to matters of justice for those in their society who are being mistreated or marginalized. Now what does that have to do with worship? What in the world does that have to do with worship. And what happens in a room like this? Well, honestly, absolutely nothing, unless, of course, our worship is supposed to have something to do with our lives and the way we live them. Nothing unless <laughs> there's supposed to be a connection between what we say before God and what we do for God out in the world. That's congruence or lack thereof. Now, we are more connected to what is going on all around the world probably than we have ever been. We're aware of it because of all kinds of media and the way news travels these days. We stay aware. And sometimes you know, actually it happens often, but sometimes we're more aware of it, something tragically unjust happens in our world. And and we, we just, it's in the air. It's in all of our consciousness. It's a, we, we're tapped into it. We're connected to what's going on. And when that happens, I sometimes wonder to myself, do I have a responsibility as a pastor to try my best to say something about that thing and how it might be somehow incongruent with the heart of Christ? 
I find myself wondering if in moments like these I should name something or say something. And I can tell you honestly that I don't want to. I can tell you honestly that when that happens, when, when there's something specific that happens and, 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 and there's this sense of maybe something should be said in response to that unjust moment immediately, I don't want to because I know it's going to disrupt someone's peace and then they may want to disrupt my peace. And why in the world would I want to invite anything like that into my life? I don't. I would much rather sit at home and watch a football game with my family. I, I, I don't. So why would I even ever do it? Why would it ever happen? Is it because I want to be popular? No, but I have been accused of that. I don't understand the logic, but... Is it because of some partisan allegiance, as some have supposed? No, there isn't any. Though there is a deep allegiance that does prompt me sometimes to say and do things with the intent to disrupt one kind of peace for a greater kind of peace. And that is my own allegiance to Jesus Christ. See, here's what happens. Sometimes in quiet, prayer-filled moments, I sometimes sense God saying to me, Jason, congruence in this moment calls for you to respond in a way that will disturb your peace and our peace for the sake of my peace. And in those moments, simply speaking up feels like it is an extreme matter of faithfulness and silence feels like incongruence. So I wrestle with this. Do I ever get it wrong? Absolutely. I know for sure I do. That's one of the few things I am certain of. So why even try? Here's the honest answer out of an attempt to be faithful. Out of an attempt to be faithful. Believing that that's what God wants from me. An attempt. An honest attempt. Knowing God will fill in the gaps with God's grace and God's love as God continues to attempt to bring the whole world into an ultimate congruence with God and God's dream and God's abundant life. And what is it that is the greatest boundary to that happening, to God's dream coming true in this world? One of them is our lack of congruence. And that is what has God so upset here in this moment. God does not hate the people. God loves the people. That is the gospel truth, and it reverberates throughout Scripture. God does not hate the people. God loves the he people. What God hates is the lack of congruence between their worshiping lives and the rest of their lives. 
Now their worship shows in content that they know what God expects of them. And yet their daily lives show they really don't care. God hates this. Because this impacts people God loves. What God longs for our worship to be is an expression of our congruent lives, not camouflage for our lifestyles. And this should not be a surprise. I mean, my goodness, this should not defy our expectations because we see this threaded throughout Scripture, especially in the pages of these prophets. God consistently resists expressions of faith that separate orthodoxy, which is right belief, from orthopraxy, which is right action. Isaiah the prophet complains about Sabbath observances disconnected from care for the needy. Joel calls for God's people to rend their hearts and not just their garments. What does the Lord require of you? Micah asks. But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And while Jesus may have defied the expectations of many in his life and teaching, he really only fulfilled what was anticipated by the prophets. And we shouldn't miss this. We shouldn't miss this because if there is a litmus test, here it is. Now Christians are famous different ones of us for creating different kinds of litmus tests. And what I mean is a little point, a place where we decide who's in and who's out. How are we going to decide who's in and who's out? Who's with God or not with God? And most of the time when we hear about these things, what we hear about is orthodoxy. Right belief. There's this right belief line, and if you cross over it, whether your intentions are good or, or, or ill... You know, you've crossed over and that's the litmus test and you are out. And yet, Jesus' harshest warnings in Scripture, the thing that sound most like litmus tests have very little to do with orthodoxy and a lot to do with orthopraxy. They have a whole lot, especially we see here and everywhere, to do with those God loves. Those who are struggling the most with one of the clearest pictures of this happening in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will also answer in that moment, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. This is the word of the Lord, but it's not one that 
easily, immediately prompts a thanks be to God, except that it does in worship, right? When we read passages like this in Amos, like we did earlier, and someone says, this is the word of the Lord, we respond immediately, thanks be to God. But do we really mean it? Or is it that it has actually become easy to say things like that because it has become easy to separate what we mean from what we say? Did we hear the word that we were responding to? How serious are we about attempting to be faithful to that word and to Jesus Christ? Our God is worthy of our worship and our praise and every inch and ounce of our lives because of who God is, because of what God has done, because of God, what God is continuing to do for us, and because of what God wants to do through us in the life of the world. And you know, God, I think really would hate for us to miss out on that. And we should too.